This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. I think throughout history there has been a, a certain fascination with the future, hasn't there? Uh, a consideration of what is going to happen. Uh, and we spend quite a lot of time, don't we, thinking about and planning for the future, whether it's on a quite trivial short-term level, uh, what are we going to have for tea tonight, where are we going to go on a holiday this year, um, and maybe sometimes it's a little more serious when we're younger, we have to think about what career we want to follow, and then when we get older we have to start thinking about retirement and pension funds and all, all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, whenever we're thinking about the future, it's for the purposes of benefiting ourselves, isn't it? On the trivial level, we want something nice for tea tonight, we want something nice and sunny to go on holiday. On the more serious level, we want a fulfilling and a rewarding career that, that, that pays us so we can afford to live, so we can afford to retire and, and, and so on. But with any aspect of planning for the future, there's, there's one thing that's certain, and that is that the future is, is uncertain, isn't it? There are precious few things in the future that we can say and predict with 100% certainty, apart from the fact that we're going to die at some point. There may be things that we'd like to happen or we think are quite likely to happen, but there's no guarantee. Uh, For example, um, if we were looking at financial investment, which we have to do, don't we, as as part of our planning for the future. We might invest in what are considered to be low-risk investments in the long term, and it's unlikely that they will lose us money. But for pretty much any investment you sign up to, in the small print in the contract that you have to sign, there will be something like the value of an investment could go down as well as up. So it's not certain. It's not guaranteed. Now, there have been people who've attempted to predict the future or claim to be able to predict the future over the years. Um, I think probably Nostradamus was one of the most famous ones, wasn't he, who apparently predicted various world events. But it doesn't take much time when looking at the so-called predictions to realise they're, they're a bit vague and you have to look at them with a certain amount of creativity to try and relate them to anything that, that's happened in the real world. Uh, And no man or woman really has predicted how world events will unfold with absolute accuracy. So what of our subject tonight then? If no one has predicted future world events, why do we say that the Bible can? Well, the words that we read in the Bible, they're not the product of the human mind. They are words that come from God. And we can read this in the first of Peter, chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, that, that's quite a big claim, isn't it? That the, the book we have in our hands is not the, the work of the human mind, but from the, from the mind of an eternal God. Um, And therefore, it's capable of predicting the future, of telling us what is going to happen. Now, as with any claim, the only real way to confirm its truth or not is to look at the evidence, to look at the facts, and then draw conclusions from them. And that's really what we want to do tonight, is look at the evidence uh, and look at the facts that the Bible really can predict 
the future. And what we're going to do is just look at three examples of where the Bible has predicted what is going to happen and then see, well, did it really happen according to what the Bible said? And the three examples we're going to look at are, firstly, um, Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel. Uh, we're going to look at the destruction of the Babylon. And we're going to look at the nation of Israel. And, and in each of three of those examples, we're going to look at what was prophesied and then look at the reality of what, of what happened. So firstly then, Nebuchadnezzar's image. Would you turn please to the book of Daniel and chapter 2. And in the year 587 BC, the Babylonian Empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar, had besieged Jerusalem. And over a year later, when it finally fell, he carried many of the inhabitants back to Babylon. And one of these was the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 2, we read about uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar, who has had a dream, had a vision, and he wants to know what it means. And Daniel, through the ability that God had given him, is able to do this. Now, we won't dig into a lot of the detail about what goes on, that the king has his dream, then he forgets what it is, and he wants to be told, and, and so on. We won't dig into the detail. We'll just concentrate on the prophecy that was made. So we're going at um, verse 31, and this is where Daniel is speaking to the king to tell him what he's dreamed. Verse 31, Thou king sawest, and behold, a great image... This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. So the, the, the vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar has is of this great big statue. Um, tried to give some kind of representation there. That's the best I could find on the internet. Um, so this, this big image, this big statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly, thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay. And Daniel then goes on to tell him what this means. Just jump to verse 38. At the end of verse 38 there, he says quite plainly, Thou, Nebuchadnezzar, art this head of gold. So that head of gold meant Babylon, the Babylonian empire that King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling. Verse 39, after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. So we know then that the gold represented the nation of Babylon, the Babylonian empire. And when we consider what happened in the historical account of history after this, it is really quite astounding, the accuracy of what is predicted here. The Babylonian Empire um, came to an end in around 539 BC when it was invaded by the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire was the next major player on the world stage. It was a big, powerful empire again. And they, that's the, the two arms of silver, the Medes and the Persians, that would get represented there. Uh, and that nation, that empire, though, came to an end in around 331 BC when it was defeated by the Greek commander Alexander the Great. Alexander's reign was, was pretty short in the grand scheme of things, and he was just 32 when he died. And after his death, the Greek kingdom, that powerful kingdom, was split amongst four of his generals. And after a certain amount of squabbling and, and infighting, there were two main um, parts to that, to that empire. There was the Ptolemaic 
which was based around Egypt, and the Seleucid, which was based around Syria. So again, it corresponds to the thighs of brass. And as the Greek Empire dwindled and, and uh, came to an end, so the Roman Empire then came into existence. Um, and around uh, 168 BC, uh, the Roman general Lucius Paulus finally defeated the Greeks, and that was the end of the Greek Empire. And the Roman Empire then came into effect, which, as we know, is a very strong, very powerful empire. Um, and again, this split into two. This was um, split into the Eastern Roman Empire and the, the Western Roman Empire, which, again, it corresponds to these legs of iron. So what we have, in a nutshell, and obviously we've gone through that pretty quickly, is, is a very accurate timeline, a prediction of the world powers that were going to come onto the earth after the Babylonian Empire. And you can look in any history book, any history textbook, and look at the dates and times of these, of these empires, and you'll see that it fits exactly what was predicted here in this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. So what was predicted here, these nations that would rise up and then fall away after the Babylonian Empire, is exactly what happened, exactly as the Bible said it would. Okay, so our next, our next one then is the, the destruction of, of Babylon itself. Now we've already considered the Babylonian nation and its status as a dominant world power. This was the... Uh, the nation at the extent of its power, we can see it, it goes from the south right down in Egypt, um, up through what is Israel today, down through Iraq, what we have Iraq today, Iran, and right way up around uh, into southern Turkey up there. So it was a, a seriously big empire, and its capital was the city of, uh, of Babylon, uh, which is situated just 50 or 60 miles south of what we know as Baghdad today. Now, Babylon was originally led by a king called Nabopolassar, and he was instrumental in building this nation into the strong and rich and powerful empire that it was. So by the time King Nebuchadnezzar became king, Babylon was a serious player in the world at the time. It was a big, strong, and powerful nation. But Isaiah the prophet prophesied that this big, strong, powerful nation would come to an end. Turn to Isaiah, please, in chapter 13. Now, when Isaiah prophesied, there's a bit of a timeline there. I'm not sure if you can read that. It's a little bit faint. Um, so the time we're looking at, this grey area here, from 740 to 681 BC, that was the time frame that Isaiah prophesied in. So when he made his prophecy, it was within that time frame. And we can see here the Babylonian Empire, around here. So when Isaiah made his prophecy, it was when the Babylonian Empire was on the up and up. The Babylon then defeats the Assyrian Empire, and it becomes this, this major power when King Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne. Um, now just look in Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 1. And it tells us who the prophecy is against. The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. So this is who it's directed at, this nation of Babylon. Uh, verse 7. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every heart shall melt. Sorry, verse 6. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction 
from the Almighty. So it's speaking about the destruction of Babylon. Uh, Verse 17, it even says who is going to do this. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. So that's the, uh, the nation that would destroy it. And then verse 19 onwards, it talks of the utter destruction. Verse 19, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there, but wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. So it's talking about the total destruction of Babylon. Now, if we just turn back to the prophecy of Daniel, please. This time we're going to go in at chapter 5. So we've already come across Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar was in power. And Daniel is still in Babylon at this point. Daniel chapter 5. And what we read of here is is some 100, 150 years after Isaiah's prophecy. So we've got this time here when Isaiah prophesied, this grey area, 746-81, and this is where Nebuchadnezzar is king. So at this point, it would seem highly unlikely that this strong and powerful nation was going to just disappear and crumble. But that's what Isaiah had prophesied. And here in uh, Daniel chapter 5, we get the account of that actually happening. Uh, and verse, uh, verse 1, we're introduced to the king of Babylon at that time, Belshazzar the king. Uh, verse 2, Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple. So this is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Uh, and again, we won't go into a lot of detail, but in verse 5 there, what he sees is the vision of a man's hand. Verse 5, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick on the plaster of the wall. So the king sees this vision of a hand writing in the plaster on the wall of the palace. Obviously, he's a little disconcerted. Once again, Daniel is called on to give an interpretation to what is written. And over in verse 25, we see what he says. Daniel speaking, and he says, This is the writing that was written on the wall. Mini, mini, tikal, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mini, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tikal, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So that was the prophecy. That was, that was, what, was what the King Belshazzar was being told here, this message that had been written on the wall. And who was it who was going to bring this kingdom to the end there in verse 28? It was a coalition of the Medes and the Persians. And we look down just a few verses to verse 31. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. So Darius the Mede invades and captures Babylon. And just over the page, chapter 6, verse 28 there, we get this idea of this coalition between the Medes and the Persians. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, who was the Mede, and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So that was the force that overpowered Babylon, and Babylon came to an end. And we can check in our history books and see this. So this is a quote from the Encyclopedia Britannica. The Persians under Cyrus the Great captured Babylonia in 539 B.C., Thereafter, Babylonia ceased to be independent, passing eventually 
in 331 BC to Alexander the Great, who planned to make Babylon the capital of his empire. But after Alexander's death, however, the Seleucids eventually abandoned Babylon, bringing to an end one of the greatest empires in history. So that's an external reference which also states exactly what the Bible had predicted would happen. So Isaiah prophesied this 100, 150 years before it actually happened, and we can see exactly there that is what did happen. Now, one other point to note, um, Isaiah 14 also continued this prophecy against Babylon, and one of, the, one of the references there from Isaiah 14, For I will rise up against them, saith the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, saith the Lord, I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, says the Lord. Now just note that phrase there, marshes of muddy water. And this extract is taken from the Ancient History Encyclopedia. Whatever early role in the city played in the ancient world is lost to modern day scholars because the water level in the region has risen steadily over the centuries and the ruins of old Babylon have become inaccessible. So again, it's exactly as the Bible predicted. That prophecy in Isaiah came to pass exactly as he prophesied that it would. Okay, so our, our third look at prophecy then is regarding the nation of Israel. And if we just turn to that chapter we read from together, Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, and the prophet Ezekiel here has, has a vision. Uh, and in that vision... He sees there uh, in verse 1, uh, the Spirit of the Lord uh, carried him around and set, set me in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. So he sees this vision of the valley full of bones. And God tells him to prophesy to the bones in verse 4, prophesy unto these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. So Ezekiel prophesies, as God commanded him to, these bones come together, they're covered with skin and flesh. And then he's told in verse 9, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy son of man and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. Again, verse 10, he does as, as he's told, I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. So these dry bones come together, they're covered in flesh and sinews, and then breath comes into them, and they stand up a, a great army. So what on earth is this, this all about? What are we being told? What do these dry bones represent? Well, verse 11 tells us, Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So these bones that he sees in this vision represent the nation of Israel. And what's going to happen to them? Well, verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Verse 14, And shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. So the prophecy here is saying that the nation of Israel will be brought into their own land. Now, the nation of Israel, obviously, we get a lot of history about the nation of Israel in, in the Bible. But in AD 70, 
the Romans conquered Jerusalem and sacked it, destroyed it, and that was the end of the nation of Israel. It disappeared. It was no more, and it remained that way for 2,000 years. And if you were to look at a map from uh, the first half of the century, sorry, that's, a, that's not that clear. This is scanned, obviously, they didn't have digitized maps, and I think this was taken from about 1947, this was. And we can see we've got Egypt down here and Turkey up the top there. And, and where Israel is today, well, there is no Israel. We've got Syria up here, and then what's referred to as Transjordan down here. There, there is no nation of Israel. It doesn't, it doesn't exist because it had been destroyed by the Romans in, in AD 70. But after World War II, on the 14th of May 1948, the state of Israel was re-established, just as the prophecy in Ezekiel said it would be. And that's David Ben-Gurion there, who went on to become the first Prime Minister of Israel, declaring the independence of Israel. And the nation was formed, and we can see it on the maps as we do today. The nation of Israel is there. And that's exactly as was prophesied in Ezekiel 37, some two and a half thousand years before it actually happened. So that's just three prophecies which we've looked at which hopefully give an idea that, that the Bible really can predict the future. It really can tell us things that are going to happen. Or it certainly has done in the past. And you might say, well, that's all, all very impressive, um, but it might lead to, to a question. Well, so, so what? Okay, maybe, maybe it did predict events that happened hundreds of years ago, but... Okay, why is, that, why is that relevant? Well, that's a, there's a very good reason why it is relevant. If you come back, please, to Daniel chapter 2 again. Now, we've already been here considering the interpretation that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, <clears throat> but we didn't quite finish looking at the prophecy that Daniel made. We saw that there was this image with the golden head, chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay. <clears throat> and we saw the interpretation of that and how it mapped onto the world empires that came and went in the subsequent centuries. But there was one last bit that we didn't look at. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the last part of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had was of this stone hitting the feet of this image and the image crumbles and is destroyed, and the stone grows to fill the whole earth. Now we're also told what this represents down in verse 43. So this is again Daniel giving Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. Verse 43, Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces 
and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So in the time represented by these feet of iron and clay, when there are some strong nations and some weak nations, but none of them really getting on, none of them really mixing or mingling, at that time we are told that God will set up a new kingdom. And this kingdom will last forever. So unlike the kingdoms that came before, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Greeks, the Romans and so on, that were very powerful or seemed so at the time, but who didn't, whose, whose empires didn't last, unlike them, God's kingdom will never end. Now Jesus is referred to in the first of Peter, chapter 2, as a living stone. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed of men, by men, but chosen by God and precious, uh, and precious, you also, as having living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. So Jesus here is described as the living stone, and, and Jesus is this stone which hits the feet of the image. That's what it's representing. Now just turn to the book of Acts, please, chapter 1. Again, thinking about prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. And we get one in Acts chapter 1 regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Jesus has been speaking with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And there in verse 9, he's taken up into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So these two angels make a prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ, in exactly the same way as he went up into heaven, is going to come back from heaven at some point in the future. And that is represented by that stone in Daniel's image that will come and strike the feet. Now again you say, well, okay, well why, why should that interest me? Okay, maybe it is going to happen, but why should that be something I'm interested in? Well, because this kingdom will be unlike any that has ever existed in the history of mankind. Just think of some of the problems that we face in the world today. We have problems with the environment, with global warming, with pollution, and all the side effects associated with that. In God's kingdom, the desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. So all those problems that man has caused in the environment will be resolved. What about the, the countless wars and conflicts and violence that, that, that are going on all the time throughout the world, causing so many deaths every year? Well, again, in God's kingdom, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, neither will they train for war anymore. So again, the problem of wars solved. What about all the illness and disease and problems associated with that that we see in the world today? Well, 
again in God's kingdom, then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Again, we have a solution to that problem that the world faces today. What, what about the, the, the upset, the distress, the fear that, that so many people live in these days in all societies? They're worrying about the state of the world and what's going on and what's going to happen. Well, Isaiah 35 again. The redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So all that fear, that worry, that concern, again, in God's kingdom, will be a thing of the past. And what about the inescapable conclusion to everyone's life, the one certainty about the future, death itself? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That old order of things is the world that we live in today. The kingdoms of the world that we live in right now, some weak, some strong, none of them really getting on with each other, with all the problems that we see every day on the news, countless problems and difficulties and challenges, that, that no one has a solution, no government anywhere is providing permanent solutions to, however well-intentioned they, they may be. All of that will be done away with in God's kingdom. And those who are in God's kingdom, well, they will live forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's what God is offering. That's the prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled and that affects every single one of us. What we're not told is exactly when this is going to be. But of that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Now God knows us, he knows what we're like, and if we did know when it was, we'd leave everything till the last minute and then just hurriedly try and, try and kind of get in at the last minute. But that's not what God wants. He wants people who genuinely want, genuinely want what he is offering so that really is what the Bible teaches and prophesies, that Jesus Christ will return to this earth, that he will establish God's kingdom, which will last forever, where all the problems of this world are done away with, and where those that are in that kingdom will live forever. And that is absolutely guaranteed, because it tells us this, in the Bible and hopefully as we've seen a small example of tonight when the Bible says something's going to happen it really does happen it really can predict the future but don't believe it just because I said so and showed you some slides or someone else says so it's what you believe that matters and it's the effect that that belief has on you as an individual that matters Mark 16 says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So that belief has to have its outworking in action in our lives. So yes, maybe what the Bible says does seem, on the surface, a little incredible maybe, but given the evidence we can see that confirms its authenticity, 
Are you going to ignore what God has told us is definitely going to happen? Are you going to ignore the opportunity to be in that kingdom that he has promised? I very much hope not. And if you aren't, then now is the time to pick up your Bible and to see for yourself. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Music